Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family at Direct at gmail.com, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to Missing Maura Murray. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I couldn't be better, Tim, as a matter of fact. How are you today? I'm doing great. And Lance, in this episode, we speak to an author named Michael Lister, really interesting guy who's doing some cool stuff. And this episode, we don't really talk about the details of Maura Murray's disappearance like we have been doing recently. Yeah, we kind of lighten it up a little bit with this episode. Michael Lister's name popped up because he is doing this campaign, which is uh, called Solve a True Crime Mystery with Michael Lister. He's uh, an author of approximately 37,000 books. I'm obviously kidding about that, but he is a prolific writer. And Michael Lister is the New York Times bestselling and award-winning novelist. He is a uh, Floridian, and he's known for his acclaimed John Jordan blood mystery thriller series. He's written a series of books about a character named John Jordan, and he'll describe John Jordan in the interview. But what he's doing right now is something that's a little bit more interactive. It's called Solve a True Crime Mystery with Michael Lister. And he's inviting his readers and he's inviting the audience to contribute to uh, the plot line of a new book and uh, and solve the mystery. And he takes his 
plot lines from crimes that have happened in the real world, and he fictionalizes them. And he's a big follower of Maura Murray's case, as well as Brianna Maitland's case. And he even has a book where uh, he features characters that are sort of based on you and I, Tim. Yeah, well, he has this book called Cold Blood, and these are fictionalized. So, so they're really he he takes a little bit of the the premise, and in in the case of Cold Blood, um, a little bit of the premise of Maura Murray's disappearance, and then yeah, there are podcaster characters who he tells us in this interview were based on us, which is really humbling, and to think that he uh, listened to the show and formulated a plot line around it and felt like what we said was important enough to be in his story. So I want to thank him again for that. It was uh, very surprising to hear uh, because when he said it to us, that was the first time that we knew that this was actually the case, that he had characters based on us. And he's doing a really good thing with the series of books. Um, if you go to his website, michaellister.com, and scroll down just a little bit, you'll see a section that says True Crime Fiction. That book, Cold Blood, is featured in, in this uh, collection, and a donation from every purchase will go directly to the Finding Maura Murray GoFundMe that Julie Murray started. So, uh, again, go to michaellister.com, scroll down a little bit, the section True Crime Fiction, and uh, know that if you buy from that section, you will be donating to the GoFundMe that Julie Murray started. All right, everyone. Well, I hope you enjoy this interview with author Michael Lister. Make sure to check out his site and check out Solve a Crime with Michael Lister. Welcome to the podcast, Michael Lister. How are you today? Great. Thank you so much for having me. Been listening to you guys for a long time, and it's, it's my pleasure to be with you today. Awesome. It's, it's so cool to have you on. You have literally written 52,000 books. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, first novel was published in 1997, and at that time I was still a full-time prison chaplain. And my main detective, John Jordan, is a prison chaplain as well as a, a cop. And, um, I have been, uh, I've been called prolific. I definitely, um, that's pretty much all I do. I've written full time since 2000. So do have quite a few, quite a few books so far. And uh, a couple that have been inspired by you guys actually. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. It, it's super, uh, surreal to hear something like that, especially from someone who is a prolific writer like yourself that does it full time. Um, it's really surreal and it's really humbling and you uh i just want to focus a little bit on your your main character you you write primarily detective stories and you have this uh continuing character how many books is uh is in your is in his catalog and tell us a little bit about him okay his name is john jordan and uh, like i said he's a uh, he uh, when the series opens he is a full-time prison chaplain he's an ex-cop from atlanta who's come back to the panhandle of florida to try to put his life back together and um, 
he he worked the Atlanta child murders in uh, in Atlanta and and had a lot lot happen there. So he's coming back home and um, for a while he's just a prison chaplain, but because of his past, he's continually you know get, gets pulled into investigations. Sometimes inside the prison, sometimes outside in the small panhandle community where he lives. And then as the series goes on, he actually becomes a sheriff's investigator again. So, so once again, he's got a, a gun and a badge. And, and it's all about him solving crime, mysteries. Uh, he specializes in, you know, the, the very difficult mysteries to solve. The whodunits, the, the sometimes locked room mysteries, sometimes just very baffling cases. But he also brings, I think, a unique perspective in terms of his compassion and his care for the victims. Uh, he, he takes a, a pastoral or ministerial approach as well as investigating. And so it, it's, you know, the, the ecclesiastical sleuth goes all the way back to G.K. Chesterton, who created Father Brown back in 1911. And there's been various incarnations, you know, priests and nuns and rabbis, even imams that, that uh, solve crime. Mine is the first prison chaplain and mine is the first to really put a, 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 a minister slash detective in a hard boiled detective novel. OK, wow. Interesting uh, combination there. And uh, so this character is is fictional, though. Yes. Yes. Uh, obviously, based on a lot of my own experiences, um, one of the reasons uh, I've been interested in crime fiction since uh, college, and one of the reasons I took the job as the chaplain at this prison was because I was already writing and interested in doing a crime fiction series. And in in crime fiction, especially, um, you know, long running series are in some ways expected. And if you can give your protagonist an interesting job, in addition to being a detective, I think you you are doing well. And so that's why I took the job uh, as a prison chaplain. I got to live. My, actually, the state of Florida paid me to do my research <laughs> every single day. And so I did that for a decade full time. And then I made the transition to writing full time. And uh, you had asked how many books I have. I'm actually working on the 25th John Jordan novel right now. 20, 25th John Jordan novel. Um, you must have an endless catalog of ideas written down somewhere. Do you uh, do you scour like the internet and, and news for these ideas? Because I mean, 25, 25 books on, on with the, the same character, you must always be taking notes. You must always be listening and watching things. That's where you guys come in. Because I was writing this series and I knew pretty early on, I wanted it to be a long running series. I really am hoping to write it for my entire life, you know, however long that happens to be. But with a long running series, obviously at a certain point, you're going to run out of ideas, you know? And so I, I wrote for the first several books, I used my own experiences and, and I'm influenced and inspired by, not just my time as a chaplain and working with convicted felons for a decade, my time living in Atlanta and in Florida and how that the two are so different, my experiences with friends and family and, you know, all my life experiences. And then, of course, there's literature itself and how you're inspired by the greats like Agatha Christie and, and others, you know, and so constantly open to all of that. But at a certain point, I realized 
that if I'm going to keep the series fresh and I'm going to keep it relevant, that I wanted to bring about a couple of things. One was I wanted to introduce true crime in, in two different ways in the series. In one way, some of the John's cases are actually inspired by true crime. In other cases, he's actually working a true crime case. For instance, like the Innocent Blood is the uh, sixth book in the series. And after the first five novels, Innocent Blood is a prequel. And in that prequel, we see John as a 12-year-old actually encountering the Atlanta child murder murderer when he was vacationing with his family in Atlanta. He was at the Omni Hotel. That's where a lot of the victims out of the arcade went missing. And anyway, so he had a confrontation and he just became obsessed with the case. And so as soon as he graduates high school, he moves to Atlanta to investigate that case. I have uh, a few different connections to that case that, you know, some serendipitous things that happened to me while I was in Atlanta. So so that's an instance in where John actually is is actually investigating a true crime case. And a lot of times I'll put a fictional case alongside the the true crime. In another case, as in Cold Blood, which is the one you guys inspired, I take a true crime case and fictionalize it. So I'd research it like I was actually going to write a true crime book, you know, about the case. But then I fictionalize every aspect of it. And so there's you you can find certain parallels. And so my character, my character, Randa Raffield, is very similar in a lot of ways to Maura Murray. But there's, of course, a lot of differences as well. And then my two characters that have a podcast and that are obsessed with Randa Raphael's disappearance and all that surrounds that were inspired by you guys. And in fact, while listening to one of your episodes, and I won't say which one because I don't want to give away my surprise ending. That's the other thing. I always try to make my endings, you know, realistic and, and, you know, almost inevitable and yet surprising. I, I hope the reader is just like, wow, they, you know, didn't see it coming, but I was listening to you guys and there was a, it's actually, it's very, you'll probably know when I say this, but you, you guys apologized for a certain um, approach you had taken and, well, I'll just, uh, I'll say this much that you, you, you wanted to bring in more of a female perspective. You, you think way back to that and that man, that, that just like, wow. And so that gave me my idea for where I was going with that novel. So that's how I, that's how I keep the novel fresh, uh, the series fresh, each novel. I, um, just wrote a book set during the pandemic, you know, so I, I'm using, um, real life, you know, current events, true crime, literature, just open to everything I can be to continually, you know, hopefully get good and fresh ideas. Wow. Well, that's very cool. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, that is, that is, uh, pretty much, uh, pretty much an honor hearing that, uh, that, that we're inspired, um, characters in a book. I think that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, all of the stories that you've written up prior to that. And I, I again, yeah, it's very surreal to think that, something that we just kind that we said gave you a, a brand new plot line which is i'm getting a little emotional <laughs> but no no it's really cool it's really cool i, I tell you I, i'd like to mention another thing as it relates to using true crime i am try to be extremely respectful and very careful when it comes to using 
you know, the experiences of real people and especially victims and their families. And so, you know, when I explore topics, I try to do it with compassion and understanding. I try to avoid what we so often see online, uh, which is victim blaming and, you know, looking for um, a reason why someone became a victim and, and as it, as if it's their fault somehow. And, and of course, uh, suspicion is almost always directed toward the family or close friends and loved ones. So I, I don't I don't take it lightly when I use actual events and true crime cases. I try to do it with the utmost respect. And and while I'm exploring theories and ideas and 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 in a way enjoying it and having fun with the investigation, and I'm I'm writing a novel that's meant to be entertaining and page turning, but I never forget that there are real victims and that includes family members and loved ones that are suffering that led to this inspiration. Um, so I, I, I try to be very careful with that. Now that's, that makes a whole lot of sense. And that's an approach that I think, uh, Tim and I, you know, put an emphasis on. It is really tough to navigate that, especially when you put yourself out there. You're, you're, you're a writer and you're uh, doing this, like you said, because you want to make sure that you have a page turner, but you still want to be respectful. Um, it's a, it's a bit different in the podcast world because you do interact a lot more with, uh, sure. with th- those who are very passionate about the case. And it's almost a bit of collateral damage to have that focused on on yourself sometimes it's right if you can take that away from um them reaching out to the family or you know friends of the victim if if we're now the distraction for them and they're getting information then i i guess that's a that's a good thing well i'm almost positive that's a good thing um so yeah it's it but it is super important when you whenever you're doing this that it's not it's not for just entertainment purposes there's a there's an actual value behind you know, writing a true crime book or having a true crime podcast. I've, I've got a, a collection, an actual box set of books that is the collection is called true crime fiction. And it's a collection of, I think about six of the novels I've written so far that are actually based on true crime cases. And in, in people who are familiar with true crime will be able to identify the cases almost immediately there's a lot of readers that are not into true crime. They're just into fiction, crime fiction. And so they could very well read it and not even know it was based on a real case or, or that elements of it are based on a real case. So in that collection, I actually write an introduction for each book and explain what about the case, you know, what drew me to the case, what inspired me about it and how I took it and made it fiction, how I turned it into a, hopefully a compelling page turner whodunit and and how I tried to do so, you know, with the utmost respect for the families and and the and the victims. So I guess then, like, how close do you come to uh, details of Maura Murray's case, for example? Uh, there's a lot that is similar. Now I took the inspiration from what happened to her, and I moved it to North Florida. So it happens on this rural highway next to the coast, to the Gulf Coast, and in she had she is. Uh, Randa Raffield, who goes missing, uh, she vanishes in a very short period of time. She encountered a truck driver, you know, shortly before she vanished. And by the time the first deputy arrived, the, you know, it was like seven minutes or so that that she completely vanished. The 
her motivation for leaving her life and why she was going, you know, where she was going and why she was doing it um, is, is different than Mora, but there's a lot of, there's a lot that's in common and it allowed me to explore various things like that. And when the, when cold blood opens and this case is being, John is investigating this case. It is, is it a cold, it's a cold case, you know, it's been cold for a while. So all of that is similar to Maura Murray's case. It's also the fact that there's this very popular podcast and people get obsessed about the case. And so I, I got the opportunity to deal with that, to look at, you know, when it comes to true crime, it's, I guess it's like most things in life. How, what we see is often says more about us than it does what we're actually looking at. That's true of religion, you know, which I have degrees in religion and studied for a long time. Uh, I think that's true of politics. I think that's true of life in general. And I really think it's true of true crime. And so people project onto either certain characters or certain situations, certain cases, so much that says about, you know, that says more about them than it does the actual case. And so I tried to explore all that, the the explosion, the popularity of, of true crime, especially since serial, since that, you know, sort of relaunched what I believe to be this sort of golden age of true crime, particularly with the advent of podcasting. How did you first uh, come across Morris case? I'm assuming you you were doing a bunch of research for an actual case that was fascinating and had the, uh, the, the mystery element and had that uh, cultural element. Yeah. You know, I think I, it's, it's really difficult to remember and I do so much research and, you know, think about, uh, I think that was, I believe it was book number 12. 12 or 13. So think about how many books I've written since then. And they're all, all involve a lot of research. But as far as I remember, I, because my books, uh, my series are set in the deep South and because John Jordan's best friend, Merrill Monroe is an African-American private investigator, correctional officer. I deal a lot with race, race, racial tensions, issues in my, in my work. And I was, really studying how popular certain cases become and and how others do not. And I believe, and I can't remember the name of the article, but but there was an article where someone was talking about, the writer was talking about how victims from minority communities, poor victims, don't get nearly the attention, the publicity, that others do. And of course, John Benny Ramsey was mentioned, another case that I've studied and, and really am obsessed with as well. Moore Murray, different ones. So I think that's what led me into to her case, as best I recall. I'm sorry, I, uh, I started laughing there. I almost couldn't help myself. I, uh, <laughs> I really just, I want to read, read your book with, with us, the, the, in, with the characters that are based off us. And I just pictured myself reading it <laughs> being like, this is the character. Like, well, what, I'm, maybe this guy must think I'm an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't wait to read it though. Yeah, the two podcasters, um, actually are, series characters so they're not just in cold blood that's where they start their podcast but they um one is a um reporter or an ex-reporter um and had done some investigating himself and 
you know, as newspapers are more and more reporters are getting fired, finding difficult, finding it difficult to find a job. Uh, he turned to podcasting and a, the friend of his that does it with him is also an investigator, but he's actually an, uh, former religion professor at Florida state university in Tallahassee. And his foray into investigation was when they have, when, when cases had elements of religion, he was called in as a specialist. So if there was something that was ceremonial or different elements like that, it was often serial killer cases. But anyway, so the two of them come together for this podcast and it's a running podcast, you know, through the book um, that, you know, is happening. And so a lot of the information about the case, the backstory and all comes from the podcast itself. And then these characters continue throughout the series. Well, you pretty much nailed our backstory. <laughs> I do. I, if you if you read the book or if you listen to it on audio, I would be interested to see. Yes, they are different from you guys, their backgrounds and, and all of that. But I hope that you see some inspiration from you guys with your back and forth and, and how you communicate with each other. I, I really took that as an inspiration and I hope you see that in there. That's awesome. I can't wait to check that out. Yeah, I know. I can't wait to I, I can't wait to read it. And this um, this this uh, connection that, that we've made now is was so random. It was just um, I was just doing a search for for true crime authors and um, your name popped up a few times. I'll, I'll just do that periodically to see if we can get some on the show, uh, because I think a lot of them have this um, ability to research and ability to tap into the community that's behind uh, the the true crime uh the particular crime, you know, like the Moore Murray community. And that's just something that Tim and I are exploring more and more is the psychology behind it. So that was just the purpose of looking into it. I had no idea. And this is mostly, I mean, kind of for the listeners too. There was no, I had no idea. Tim and I had no idea that, that you had a book that had us as like <laughs> characters in a sense. It, this is the first time we're hearing about it too. Well, you, and it's interesting because when you reached out and I, I, I'm doing this new project called uh, solve a crime right, with right. Me, solve a mystery. And, and what I'm doing to me, this is because of, you know, so many people are still in quarantine and looking for things to do. And I just thought this would be a neat approach. Normally I do all the research for the true crime case before I start writing the novel. And then I continue to research it as I'm writing it. And a lot of times I'll talk about after the novel's published, I'll talk to my readers and interviewers about the case. This time I'm actually reversing that. And so I'm inviting readers who want to, to do the research with me. I'm actually having a discussion group where we'll investigate this true crime case together. And then as I'm writing the book that comes out in October, and then they'll get to read the book and compare. First of all, we'll come up with theories and different things about the, the real life case and we'll examine evidence and, you know, all of those kind of things. And then they'll get to read what I did fic fictionally, what I did with the story and be able to compare those. But so I think that's probably why my name came up and why, especially connected to Moore Murray and different ones, because I, there was a, um, a newspaper article that came out and I mentioned some of the cases that had inspired me already. And so when you reached out and I said, Oh, I would absolutely love to do your show. And, and uh, it, it was actually probably the third or fourth email that I told you that you guys were, had inspired 
you know, the book to a large extent, and then you guys had inspired characters in it because I wasn't even thinking of that at first, you know, and then, and then I got to thinking, man, I, you know, probably should have reached out to you guys at the time. I think the book came out in 2015 or 2016. I should have reached out and said, Hey, you know, I should have sent you a book, but I, I just stay. So I'm always on to the next book. And you know, that I, I did, and I didn't do it for any other reason, except I found it inspiring. You know, I found you guys inspiring. So, so, but I, I probably should have told you a long time ago. That was the case. It's okay. We're, we're very intimidating. It's okay. We understand. <laughs> now that's right. <laughs> super cool though. I, I can also see how the the podcast element could be a great plot device um, in your series. So that makes a lot of sense um, fictionally there. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Um, but tell us a little bit about this, um, this crowd solve uh, event. Yeah. This is the title is uh, solve a mystery with Michael Lister. That's the, and there's, there's, I should say, there's more information on my website, and that's just michaellister.com. But um, I've, every time, if I finish a novel and I don't have the idea yet, the inspiration for the next novel, then I take a little time and just, just soak up things. You know, I'm just constantly looking, you know, and, and because I've been doing this for so long, I really have a trust that the next idea will come. Often it comes before I even finish the the previous book, but in this case, when I finished my my most recent book is called Blood Pathogen, and it's it's a murder mystery set during the pandemic. I didn't have the idea for the next one. I always have some ideas of things that I hope to get to eventually, but I didn't have a specific idea, and so I just begin to stay open. And my wife and I watch a lot of true crime. We listen to a lot of true crime. And so I'm, I'm constantly, I read a lot of true crime books. I'm constantly open. And I had a couple of things came up and I was, I was intrigued and I'll dig a little deeper and, and it's nah, that's not quite it, you know, and it may actually circle back and that may be a book, you know, in the future, but I knew it wasn't for this time. And I, then I, I came upon a case that I was like, Oh my goodness. The, the setup was so, perfect for a crime fiction thriller uh murder mystery and that's all of mine are whodunits you you don't you know john is investigating you're invited to investigate the the mystery along with him and it's not revealed until the end you know who the culprit is and so when i came across this setup i was like this is perfect I, I've, i'm gonna do this and i that was one of those things that you know, clicked and i knew almost immediately intuitively hey this is it after that, then I began to try to find more information about it. And then I was just so thrilled to find there was a lot of information out there. And there's, um, a, you know, some TV shows like the true crime TV shows, and there's actually a podcast. And so there's, there's things about it. And I've not said what the case is so far. And I've said that I, I'm not going to reveal that until the, until the group itself, but I can tell you it is a, it's a, it's a quote unquote solved case because the authorities ruled it an accident. And I, I really think that it bears another look and a lot of other people have already looked at it and find it very suspicious. And uh, I think there's a, I think foul play is very likely involved. And so, um, anyway, so that's the case that we'll be exploring together in the group. And then that's, my new book, which um, is titled uh, Beneath a Blood Red Sky, 
is based on this case. Wow. Uh, So how does it come together, I guess, as far as the collaboration part? So this is the first time I've ever done this part of it. Uh, I have in the past have have had various um, helpers with research and, uh, of course, with my editor and my wife and some of my um, beta readers. I will discuss aspects of a case and I'll ask them questions and get their thoughts and comments. Uh, I think one of my most important books that I've written um, is called Bloodshed, and it's about a school shooting. Uh, And there again, when it comes to true crime, I was greatly inspired by what happened at Columbine and then how that actually became the blueprint for so many other school shootings, you know, through the years. And with that, I was constantly not only doing all the research, but I was constantly asking my editor and my closest readers their take on different things, whether it's characters or aspects so, of the case. So in this, this time, any reader who wants to join this group, we're going to do that together. And so what I'll do is post a, a video or a podcast and questions, and then we will discuss it back and forth. And hopefully as a group come up with new theories and ideas and, and really because we'll look at the the evidence, the you know the physical evidence. We'll look at the witness statements. We'll look at every aspect of the case, the forensics, and then come up with theories and and let those theories face scrutiny, the scrutiny of the group, you know, and say, hey, I think this, I believe this. What about that? And that sort of relates to something I was mentioning earlier when it comes to some of the disrespect that is shown in in the true crime community, you know, I think for, for some, and hopefully these are the rare, rare few, but for some, what seems to be missing more than anything else is a sense of humility that says, this is just my theory and I'm basing it on, and hopefully it is based on some facts and some, some evidence, but to have the humility to say, I could be completely wrong about this. This is just one theory, and I should be willing to discuss this theory with you respectfully and get your feedback and back and forth. And to me, that's how the citizen detective is going to solve more and more cases when we're not going off on wild tangents and, and willing to you know, rip someone to shreds because their theory is different from ours, but that we can really exchange information and do it with the humility that says, I could be absolutely wrong. That's why I'm submitting this theory to your feedback. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I didn't expect we would be talking about this, but I'm glad we are. Uh, what is it about this? You said to that they should have the humility to uh, respect the other person's theory. Um, is it is it like completely ego driven? And the the reason why I ask this is because these battles are displayed on social media for the public. I mean, these could be things that could easily be done privately via email or a phone call, or, you know, they could schedule a, 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 you know, like a Zoom meetup every Sunday and talk about the case and really work it out. But these are going on like for the public to see. And, and it doesn't make much sense for somebody to be going off on their theory and naming names. I mean, what if they're, what if they're right? You know, what if they're right and, right, and they're exactly, naming yeah. names? They've just blown it. They, you know, like someone could be alerted to this and, and that's just not, not on their head, not in their heads at all. I just, the, the ego is crazy to me. 
I, I absolutely agree. And I think, you know, every, everything has a shadow, right? And every strength is also a weakness and vice versa. And so if you say that someone's obsession with a case, you know, shows a, a care and concern and an interest, the shadow side of that could be they feel ownership or an entitlement that says, this is now mine. And so my theory about this is, you know, all that matters. And I think we do see a lot of obsession. And I mean, like, true psychological obsession, not just I use, I said I was obsessed with the JonBenet Ramsey case earlier. I don't mean it in the same sense. I find it interesting. And I've investigated it since it happened. I happen to have a daughter who's her same age. And when I was writing my first novel, it's when this case happened. So I, you know, that's one aspect. The other aspect is if, if you look at social media and what people do online, look at it in the realm of religion, look at it in the realm of politics. True crime is no different. And so, and I think there is a, there's a hiding, you know, I'm in my own little room and I'm firing off at you through my computer. You're not really there. So there's distance. And I think, I think we, in, with a tool like the internet, we see the best and worst of humanity. And um, I feel like in the true crime community, those who are doing the kind of things we're talking about are the vast minority. I think they really are. But, but as often as the case, the most radical are usually the most vocal. They usually get the most attention. And so I don't think they are a good sample of humanity, you know, I don't, so, but I think the lack of humility, and again, put it in any realm, put it in the realm of religion or of politics or of, you know, psychology or whatever it happens to be true crime. If, if we're coming, if we're, if we're confident, we're not fearful, then I'm willing to submit my theory to scrutiny, to, to have your feedback and it's not going to devastate me if you disagree. And I'm not going to feel the need to attack you because you disagree. And if you begin to attack, then hopefully I'd be in a good place to see where that's coming from and not just automatically fire right back and, and do the same thing. But it's, it's a complex issue. But I, I do believe we're talking about a very small percentage of all those who consume true crime. Yeah, I think that's fair. That's pretty much, I think, what we've come across, too, in uh, our experiences with um, those kind of arguments. And I, I agree the ego's involved. And I will also just this one other thing. I think there's some attention seeking, and I think there's a certain type of personality, certain types of uh, on the spectrum of narcissism, that the more attention gained is just like feeding the beast. And so, of course, it just perpetuates and it whereas if it was not engaged with if it was ignored if it was you know say hey, i'm gonna i'm gonna respond respectfully to people who are talking respectfully you know and we're actually on a mission to be helpful as citizen detectives in this case then we won't get you know um we, we always ask the question you know is this getting us closer to finding out what happened to mora or what happened to john benet or whoever it happens to be or is it just me entertaining myself and fighting with you about stuff that really is tangential to the to the actual case? Totally, totally. So then what do you think happened to Maura Murray? Right, right. I was just going to ask that. <laughs> so you've done a lot of research into Maura's case and Brianna Maitland's case. 
but yeah. it's Morris case that we're talking about today. What's your theory? Well, I don't have a single set theory, and I'm definitely open to come everything. on, man. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get. I'm really gonna give <laughs> just you just kidding. Things. I'm just <laughs> trying, trying to be that passionate online uh, person. I think that if you talk to any great detective, fictional as I deal with, or in real life, maintaining a certain openness and following facts, following you know, and and there's nothing wrong with the theory until that theory is proven wrong, and then you have to come up with another one. It's the scientific method, right? I'm gonna say this is my hypothesis. I'm gonna test it. If it, if that's not it, then I'm gonna go to the next thing. If my ego is attached to that theory, then I have to defend it and fight it, you know, and now I have to sort of contort facts to prove that it's correct. So I will say that I, I remain open. I also say that when it comes to unsolved mysteries like like this one, and this is one of the most mysterious unsolved mysteries there is. And we have, of course, several mysteries within the larger mystery. And we could go through each one of those. And the danger is with an unsolved mystery, especially one going on this long. And when there's mysteries inside of the mystery is when we don't know something it's a real, it's really tempting to fill that void with, we want to know our, our minds are for the most part are not comfortable with ambiguity. And so we want to feel it. So we want to say, Hey, you know, it's, it's gotta be this, or it's gotta be that. And that's how the wild theories happen. So I think we need to look at what is possible and what is likely. And when I start by saying what is possible, because it's still open, because we've not found Maura Murray alive or dead, then of course it does lead to speculation, but it also means that even some of the wildest theories, it's really hard to say that's absolutely not possible. It's not the case because we don't know. But I do think there's things that are far more likely than others. So when it comes to that, when it comes to actually what is likely, I would say the two most likely occurrences really start the same way. And and I believe, and again, I could be completely wrong. It's just my theory. But I believe she left the vehicle. I believe based on the, the dog's scent where they followed that she went a ways on her own, whether it's walking or running. And then it's at that point that what happened occurred. And I think the two most likely things are that she did go into the woods or in somehow succumb to the elements. And, and especially if you say, and this actually leads to both of my theories, if she was at all inebriated or, or influenced at all with any kind of substance, and she had just been in a wreck. So she's dazed, maybe confused, whatever the case, you know, I, I've been in just a few accidents, you know, not life threatening, not, but it was enough to shake me up. And I know your system goes into shock. And, you know, so a lot of things is happen are happening that way. So perhaps she did go somewhere and did, was not able to get up and was not able to, maybe she was more injured than we realize, or just the cold, whatever it was. The other thing, and I think is probably more likely, but it's, it really depends on how detailed, how um, effective the searches have been. And I think you guys know a lot more about that than I do. But if the searches have been what they should be, then it means it's less and less likely that her body is out there to be discovered uh, from, from the elements or whatever. 
So I think if she walked or ran for a certain distance, then I think it's likely that someone picked her up, you know, that she was willing. And I think that's the most likely scenario that she was willing to take a ride, perhaps wanting to get away from the scene, perhaps wanting like so, so often is the case. If alcohol was involved at all, wanting to come back later, um, being upset, whatever the case may be, because of that, I think it's far more either the person she went away with, something accidentally happened. And so then there's the cover up, the hiding of perhaps her body, if if something like that happened, or it was an opportunistic killer, not a so-called serial killer that's out there hunting for a victim, but that whatever, whoever she got in the, and I don't, I don't think it was someone she knew. I don't subscribe to the the tandem. I don't think she was with someone else that picked her up. I do believe it was a stranger and that whatever happened, intentional killing or accidental, that that's the most likely, most likely case, but I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'd love the way you broke it down. Yeah, me too. And, and you made a lot of great points. Um, and we don't know either, you know, and, uh, I won't make the same joke before as uh, jumping down your throat. (laughs) But, you know, Julie Murray has said that somebody knows something. That's a uh, that's not just an arbitrary thing to say. You know, somebody does know something we don't know, but someone knows. Um, And with all of the pressure, all of the talk, all the awareness, the podcast, the community, your book, um, even even uh, starting the uh, solving a, a mystery with with Michael Lister. Uh, you know, it just energizes the community. It it keeps people talking, even if it's not talking about Moore's case. They'll eventually come back around to Moore's case again, and right. and it's all it just keeps the uh, energy going. And you're right; the the detractors are just a very small, loud minority. So that's just something that comes with the territory, I guess. And you know, I just shared with you what I believe is most likely, but as I said before, it is possible that the wildest theory we've heard is the correct one. I mean, it, it until we know for sure. Now, again, I do think it's important to say, you know, what's the evidence you're basing that on? Can you really say this is po- even possible given everything we know? And if that's the case, then let's explore it. But if it, if it strange credulity, if it's so far out there, and again, not just so far out there, but there's no evidence for that theory. Then I think our time is better spent on other more likely scenarios. The thing about law enforcement that I found in my, I, I have um, a really close friend of mine is the sheriff in the county where I live. And uh, he has become one of my primary consultants and helps me with every single book I write. And I, I should also say that in my novels, I really try to take a very realistic approach to crime itself, to the investigation, to the solving of the crime. And like I said, I want it to be a surprise. And I feel like several of my novels, based on reviews and what readers tell me, the ends are actually shocking. But yet they don't say, oh, but it doesn't make sense or that I, I can't buy it or I don't believe it. Again, I want it to be inevitable and yet surprising. And part of that is following how law enforcement works and asking questions. You know, I have so many consultants, but the thing about most law enforcement, um, especially in small, I live in a rural area where more went missing is a very rural area. A small police department 
most crimes that happen, even violent crimes, it's obvious who did it. There's, there's, I mean, it is obvious. It's only in these cases where it is not obvious or your obvious suspect, a family member, like say in the JonBenet Ramsey case, it, it turns out not to be the case or that so many mistakes were made early on in the investigation and, and which happened in both of these cases that the investigation is so flawed that there is really very difficult for law enforcement to get a handle on it. But when it's obvious law enforcement's good, you know, they go with statistics, they go with who's most likely, Oh, you know, it's obvious. This is not a who done it. This is who did it. And we, we can solve it. We can build our case for the district attorney to, to take it to court when it's a true who done it it becomes very, very difficult. And you would have to be, I think, a very seasoned detective to be able to approach a case like this successfully. Um, Lou Holtz comes to mind. Again, when it, going back to, to the JonBenet Ramsey case, I feel like he brought that and he had solved over 100 homicides or, or maybe far more, I can't remember. But, but his approach was someone who was a detective and seasoned, but also open and could explore a whodunit in a way that your typical deputy or even sheriff's department and police department investigator never encounters. They never encounter a case like that. So they're not prepared, especially in a small area. What kind of um, questions do you ask your, uh, the, you said it was a sheriff of the county that you live in as your good friend. What kind of questions yes, do you yeah. ask uh, him when you're approaching a, a new, a new mystery, a new fictional mystery? Well, I, I ask him absolutely everything. And even, even when I think I know the answer, I still ask him again. And it's interesting because not only every time will he give me, you know, more and more information, but he'll refer to different cases he's worked and he, he just draws from statute, Florida statutes and the way the law works and just every bit of it and how he runs his department. As I said, um, for the last 10 or 12 books, John has been a sheriff's investigator so he actually is working for a department like my friend manages. My friend's name is Mike Harrison, and we went to school together. We're in the same class. So we grew up together our whole lives. And when he became, in fact, I, he started consulting with me before he was a sheriff. He was an investigator. And so he, he's been doing this for me for a very long time. But I ask him issues related to jurisdiction. Like in the case I'm studying now, when a body is discovered in a body of water, who has jurisdiction? And sometimes in the case of the one I'm working on, the county lines are divided almost right in the center of the river. So uh, someone could be murdered on one, in one, on one bank in one county. The body floats over to the other bank and it's in a different county. Who has jurisdiction? Who's going to run the... You know, and so he answers questions like that, procedural questions, I mean, just anything I have, and it's so extremely helpful. I have a forensics specialist that answers questions, and then, then it's certain specific cases are going to require certain you know knowledge and uh, uh, specific questions I'll have that you know I can do internet research, and I do, and I can do I research books and everything else, but there's nothing like talking to an expert and all the experience they bring. And so that's what I try to do with each book is to get as much of that as I can. 
and let that inform the novel. And if you think about, uh, and this, I'm sorry for the cliche, but if you think about an iceberg and what little bit you see in the novel, you're seeing the small part. And, but beneath that, all this research I've done, all the information I've gotten, it never makes it into the the novel. And yet in a way it does because it informs everything. And it gives a, it gives a, to me, a credibility and a believability to this fictitious, fictitious story. Yeah, totally. Have you um, ever run by elements of Morris case to any of your consultants? I have, I, it's a, a, a discussion I have with a lot of different people. I don't think, well, actually, yes. When I was actually working on cold blood, the, the, my novel that's inspired by this case, I asked all of my experts, all my consultants, all of my people, uh, all kinds of questions about it. And in some cases, I'm, I'm trying to think back, but I think in some cases I would ask them questions without identifying the case, without saying specifically, this is the, you know, inspired by the Moore murder case. And so these are the questions I have. And so I didn't really get like their theories about this particular case, but I shared with them elements of it and, you know, got certain feedback. So it was more not an overall of the case, but specific elements related to it. Following Moore's case, you're obviously familiar with James Renner, and he's a he's a writer as well. Have you read um, his book about the case, True Crime Attic? I have. In fact, uh, you know, when I first read that article and started listening, to, you know, getting interested in all his was one of the first books I read about the case, and then just reread it recently. And so, um, I would say that he is a fantastic writer. He is a really, really fine writer. And I, there's so many elements of his book that I just thoroughly enjoyed and have been inspired by, you know, and really, obviously I differ from him in certain theories and, and, you know, where he goes and certain conclusions he draws, but um, that's fine. I mean, that, that's, that's all good. I trust his research and I really applaud his, his writing and his storytelling. I think it's interesting that I, as I reread the book, I thought this even more. You look at the title of the book. In one way, you could say this book is not about Maura Murray or her case. It's about James Renner. And he actually says that, you know, this is I'm the true crime addict. Right. And I'm telling you how I lost myself in this case. When Serial started. The journalist said, hey, I've never done this before, but I'm actually going to insert myself into this case and you're going to hear my takes. And, you know, when that happens, like I said earlier, it often becomes more about the person and what they're projecting onto what they're seeing than what's actually there. Uh, the the best journalists, the best investigators, I think, keep a distance and they there's not so much projection. But anyway, taking that, I do think the book is you know largely about him and his journey which i find very fascinating and again he is an excellent writer researcher reporter i, I really like all that as those aspects a lot well, very good we'll um we'll let him know that you said that so he uh, won't sick the dogs after you <laughs> <laughs> just kidding um no that's uh that's that's pretty much it that i have except um you had mentioned in one of the correspondences about um, possibly doing a, a book giveaway or a donation? Did you want to talk about that during this interview? 
Sure, would love to. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, uh, anyone who's interested in participating in this Solve a Mystery group, or if they would like to check out the uh, the true crime fiction bundle I mentioned, the six novels that are based on true crime cases that have my introductions about them, um, I am anybody who does that. I'm going to donate half of the proceeds, and so half of everything I bring in is going to go to the GoFundMe that Julie set up for, for Mortimer and for the case. So, um, it's all the information's on my website. And if anybody has any questions, they can you know contact me through that, but it's just michaellister.com and, uh, it'll be, you can sign up for the group there, purchase the books or whatever. And then you feel free to drop me a, an email to make sure that I know that, you know, this is how you came to this. And if you have any questions for me, but, um, in the very near future after this, you know, whenever this airs and whatever people decide to be a part of this, then we will be hopefully making a sizable contribution to this more Murray GoFundMe. That's great. Thank you so much. How cool. So definitely check out michaellister.com and get your copy, uh, sign up. Also get your copy of Cold Blood, uh, but you can sign up for Solve a True Crime Mystery with Michael Lister. person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait.